as we dig around in the Bible to discover what it says about God and his creation. Of course, with his help, prayerfully and asking the Spirit to teach us, we can get to know him in all of his glory and majesty and splendor. And we can also get answers to some of the most profound questions of human life. Now, maybe I'm just weird because I spent four years in a college dorm, but we were always asking these questions how did people get here? And if you think of every culture, there's different myths about creation. Are we here by an accident of evolution? Or were we created for a reason, for a purpose? And if we are here for a reason, what is the proper purpose for our lives? And even specifically, we'll all say, you know, my life. What am I supposed to do? Well, this week, I, I spend at least a couple of hours, maybe three, and I kind of scratch the surface about what the Bible has to say about God's glory. Because that's how our passage, that's how Paul's prayer ended. He said this is all to God's glory. Now, even in just those few hours, I saw enough to know that his glory is one of his greatest attributes. He has so many, but this is one of the greatest. So uh, let me just uh, say a few things, because his glory, one of the things I found was it touches on these questions. In fact, it may touch on every question that people may have. So here's just a few things I discovered. God is glorious, and he is majestic, and he has crowned his greatest creation, human beings, with glory. That's pretty profound. That's in Psalm 8. And then uh, people are to declare God's glory. That's something that we have, what should I do? We declare it to others, and then we attribute glory to God as we worship him. So even now, we should be attributing glory to him because he is the highest king of all kings, and he will judge the peoples in righteousness and truth. Psalm 96. It's an awesome psalm. And then through the prophet Isaiah, and I've discovered this after just about three or four years of reading the Bible. Isaiah is the fifth gospel. In fact, I think if the only gospel we had was Isaiah, it would be enough. And in the last chapter of Isaiah, Yahweh gives this word. And just think about this. Think about this. 700 years before Bethlehem and Jesus, he will miraculously be glorified in his people before he comes in fire to judge, gathering all the nations who will see his glory, and then he will set a sign also 
for the nations besides Israel that had not yet seen his glory. And here's the most mind-boggling thing. Some people from every nation on earth, not just the chosen tribe of Israel through Abraham, some people from every nation on earth will be his priests. Again, all to the glory of God. But his glory is most fully shown, or to use a nickel word, manifested, in his son, the Savior, King, Priest. Through him, through Jesus Christ, and his work that he did while he was on earth and is still doing even now in heaven, people can have spiritual birth into a living hope. Oh yeah, after we have this birth into a living hope, we will have grief in all kinds of trials. They go together, it's inescapable. But this will result in what? Praise, glory, and honor when the Savior returns. And this is the very Savior who suffered death before God glorified him. And if we are in this Savior, we can do the same. Peter put that in the first chapter of his first letter. And I've given you seven more passages to study. If you look up every passage in this outline, you know, you won't be bored this week. You'll have at least 10 hours or more of something to occupy you. Well, now we come to Paul's intercessory prayer for the Christians who were living in Philippi. And he requests four things for these Christians to one big result that is through Jesus Christ, ultimately again, to God's glory. I was reminded again this week of the catechism. Why are we here? To glorify God. And notice this. No one can be who he or she was created to be as a person or to do what he or she was created to do without being in Christ Jesus. And let me just elaborate on this a bit. And I'll be quoting one of the church fathers later. Anything we try to do in our own strength, in our own way, without God, is doomed to failure and frustration. We can only, only, only enjoy God and please God and do that which is right when we are fully in Christ Jesus. And boy, do I fall short of this, but it means we need to be aware of him every moment, of his power, of his holiness, of everything that he is. We need to be in him. And, but if we are in him, then we are given all that we need to bring glory to God. And as I gave you in this outline, when we bring glory to God, hallelujah, we get to share in his glory. So now let's look at this prayer. First and foremost, before anything else, Paul prays their love will be growing, growing in knowledge. So he says, I'm praying this, colon, first, your love may abound more and more. So we need to understand something about Paul 
in the church in Philippi. This was the very first church that this church planter planted in Macedonia in Europe. And as you read through Acts, after he planted the church in Philippi, he went on to Thessalonica and Berea, working his way west through Macedonia before he went due south to Achaia and Corinth. Now love, I need to take some time because the sentimental love Americans think of is not love. It's not what the Bible means by love. Let me give you a short, quick definition. Love actively seeks the benefit of the one that is loved. Love is never about me. It's never about us. Love seeks through actions the benefit of the object of love. And that's God in the supreme. We deserve nothing. It's all because God loves us. I mean, God is everything. He needs nothing. And yet he was willing to die for us that we could be reconciled to him, be his adopted children, and receive his love, not because we deserve it, but because he acts for the benefit of undeserving people like us. And it's reflected in his character and his actions, especially on the cross. And if you really want to see what God's love is all about, just read 1 Corinthians 13. That love is not human love. It's read a lot at marriages and anniversaries. This is God's love. And when we get filled with God's love, then we can also begin to act that way. And we saw last week on Pentecost, God even has this kind of amazing love for his enemies. Imagine that. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Now, uh, I've got this new... Uh, new old commentary. And in the fourth century, one of my biggest heroes among the church fathers, John Chrysostom, who was the bishop in Constantinople, said about this very prayer of Paul. I like the way he put it. You know, that love should be increasing more and more. He says, there is no measure to love, meaning God's love and those that have God's love, because he says, one who loves and is loved in return, does not wish for that love to stop, but wants, desires more and more and more and more. And now here's a really cool thing. I found this out in the early 1990s. When Paul was writing to the churches in Thessalonica, 30 miles west of Philippi, in his first letter, he prayed that the Lord would make their love overflow for each other and to everyone else. And then in his second letter, in Scripture, it's only three chapters later, the very first words out of his mouth, some three or four months later, was that the love they have, everyone for each other, is actually increasing. He had gotten a report from Titus. So I don't know if you found this out in your own digging around, but this was the first time I ever saw in the New Testament 
a specific yes answer to prayer. Paul prayed something. It's in scripture. Three or four months later, he reported, God answered my prayer, and it's all about love. Now, there's something kind of implicit in here that will come out as we continue to dig in. Remember last week I said the church in Philippi was very good. They were doing a lot of things right. They were already loving God and loving one another. But Paul, as a good church planter and leader and lover of these people, is warning them, do not get complacent. Just because you have done right up to now, don't rest on your laurels, don't stop growing. We will never get to where we should be, and therefore that's why he's praying, may your love increase more and more. Do not settle for where you are now. It's not far enough. And then he goes on to say, as it's growing and increasing, it should be in knowledge and perception. Now, this word for knowledge is a rare word in the New Testament. This word's only about 20 times, as opposed to well over 100. It means to have precise and correct knowledge. Sometimes we think we know something and we're wrong. This means precise, correct knowledge that leads to the obedience of faith. And then the word perception can also mean discernment. We need to be able to decide, are our actions right or wrong? Did I do right there or did I do wrong? And so we're going to go back to Solomon and his wisdom to his sons. He told his sons that we can get this discernment by listening, by memorizing, by searching, by crying out to Yahweh. And the benefit that we'll get is we'll understand the fear of Yahweh and we'll find God's knowledge. And then he goes on to say, moreover, Yahweh will give wisdom and he will protect those who walk in integrity. And he will guard the way of those that he is making holy and they will understand righteousness and equity and be guarded and kept. So discernment is something that we can work towards. We need to listen to what God says in his word all the time, every day. We need to memorize it. And then when we realize we fall short, we need to cry out for it. Now, when we talk about knowledge and perception in America today, we think, oh, these are qualities of our intellect. Oh, do I have this in my brain? Do I understand it? But in God's word, these qualities go way beyond. They have a strong moral aspect, and they should affect our behavior. If it's only in our head, it hasn't gone far enough. Even in our heart, it hasn't gone far enough. What are we doing? This is what people actually do. So those who are without correct knowledge, though, and without correct perception, they will automatically act immorally, and they'll risk being cast away by Jesus Christ when he comes to judge. So Paul's intercessory prayer is all about 
living for Christ now, today, in light of his soon coming later to judge all who ever lived. We must live more and more in God's love so that when he comes back, we'll be welcomed into his eternal kingdom. So let me just say this one more time. What we do now makes a huge difference in the future. If we're complacent now, if we rest on our laurels now, we risk judgment and being cast away. If we continue to grow, we will experience blessing. And then he says, as a result of this love increasing more and more, they will approve what is excellent, and they will do righteous deeds through Jesus Christ to God's glory. So the middle part of this prayer is, here's the result. I mentioned there's a result comes up. You will approve excellent things by being sincere and blameless to the day of Christ, to that judgment day. Um, so you will be approving of things that are excellent. And this word approval, buried in that meaning, in the language the Bible was written in, it means that it's been carefully examined. We don't just approve something because we feel like it. We examine it in light of God and his word. And then they're able to discern also what is excellent. And if you look at Romans, you will see that Paul, being a good Jew who had Torah memorized, said, we determine excellence based on what God told Moses, especially in Deuteronomy. And also in his teaching, Jesus talked about excellence. And in his parable about the birds, God cares about the birds of the air and he feeds them. So you need to have faith in your father. You as human beings, the last of creation, you're far more excellent than these birds. So what was Jesus really saying? He wasn't talking so much about birds and people, but he wanted God's people to fully trust in their heavenly Father's love, care, and provision for them. You see, the love of God gives perception and discernment about what is excellent. And he says, and if you are doing this, you will be kept by God as both sincere and blameless all the way to the day of Jesus Christ. Now these are rare words in scripture, but Peter wrote to the scattered and persecuted Christians of the late first century so that they would awaken their sincere minds to the words of the prophets. Who are the prophets? All of scripture written before Jesus came to earth in Bethlehem. We call it the Old Testament. And the apostles, who are the apostles? All of scripture written after Pentecost. We call it the New Testament. As they are getting themselves ready for the second coming of Christ. And he said, you will be more sincere in your minds. You'll be building this up so that rather than falling away, you will grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to the glory of God. And then this blameless, 
when Peter appeared, and we get this in the book of Acts, before the Roman governor Felix in Caesarea, he responded to the Jews' accusations to him by saying that even now, yes, when I was a Jew, but even now following the way, what the Jews are calling the way, which is all about Jesus, I'm always striving to keep my conscience blameless. Why? Well, that day. Okay, this was all throughout the prophecy of Isaiah and the major prophets. And in the last letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, his true son in the faith, he said, Christ Jesus is coming back someday to judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom. That's our motivation. That's why we continue to grow now, because we know what's coming. And then he says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this is pretty cool. Don't miss this. He says, yes, you've made a lot of progress. And even right now, you have been filled with the fruit of righteousness. And this is what we need. Again, I spent some time in Proverbs this week. Solomon tells us, the fruit of righteousness is the tree of life. This is the very tree of life that was lost when our first parents were kicked out of Eden and the Lord put an angel around it so we could never eat of the tree of life again. And also, those who are righteous, this is why it's so important to be in Jesus, they may dwell in Yahweh's sanctuary and live on his holy hill. That's Psalm 15. And then Paul commanded Timothy to pursue righteousness and five other qualities, which I put on the back of our bulletins this morning. And uh, again, Chrysostom. He's talking about what does Paul mean here? What is the Spirit saying about this righteousness? He's praying that these Christians may have an up right life, filled with the fruits of righteousness. And here's where the church fathers really understood what was happening in Scripture. There is an implicit warning here. And Chrysostom understood this. He was one of the greatest preachers in church history, uh, preaching in the Hagia Sophia. He's not speaking of this righteousness that desperately tries to be righteous without the help of Jesus Christ. Again, that could be, that's the biggest mistake we could ever make. Um, so, um, God's character. Yahweh is holy and righteous, and he loves the righteous, Psalm 11. That's a good short one to read. And through Jeremiah, Yahweh said, I'm going to raise up in David's line a righteous branch, and we know that means Jesus, whose name will be Yahweh, our righteousness. And Revelation, there's all those beautiful praise choruses, um, praise songs in Revelation. And in 16, there's an awesome one where it says, the Lord is righteous and judges righteously. So how do we get righteousness if we don't get it by our own efforts? We're told, as Paul is praying here, 
the through Jesus Christ righteousness. So our source of righteousness is Jesus and Jesus only. We can be righteous from him. And when Paul was writing to these Christians due south in Corinth, he said, God made Jesus Christ their righteousness. Let me quote it from the Revised Standard. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom, meaning Christ Jesus, God made to be our wisdom, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So let me just steal something from the Nike commercial. People, let's just do it. May we all desire to strive to take on more and more of God's character as we grow in Christ. And especially let us pray that we may have his righteousness in us. And how will we know it? How will others know it? By doing righteous deeds in Christ Jesus. Let me give this little summary to this point. Those who are experiencing God's love in their lives every day will live and act in God's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Bottom line, all of this is to the glory and praise of God. Now here's a church father I wasn't familiar with, but Theodora of Sir. He wrote in the 5th century about this conclusion to prayer, and I think this is pretty cool. He says, if we enjoy this gift, the fruit of righteousness in Christ, this will keep our faith uncontaminated. Again, the church fathers knew how easy it was to fall away and to become unrighteous, unpleasing to God. And he goes on to say, we must present this fruit of righteousness to God so that God will be celebrated by all. What's he saying here? This is pretty cool. Because the last thing Jesus told us to do was to make disciples of all nations and be his witnesses. Well, as we live to the glory of God, letting Christ's righteousness work through us in who we are and what our deeds are, then others may come into his kingdom observing us doing these acts of righteousness to God's glory by the very righteous witness of our lives. So... Bottom line, coming back to the beginning. Why am I here? God created people to bring him glory and praise. And Paul began his prayer with this, that they and also we may be filled with God's love. And let me say this, human love that reflects God's love is the only righteousness that counts before God, because it brings glory and praise to God. And here's a short verse you should all memorize. It's so few words, Galatians 5, 6. When Paul wrote to these churches in Galatia, he said, 
Because when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, it makes no difference to God whether we're circumcised or uncircumcised. Forget the externals. What is important is, and here's what we should all memorize, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love, in deeds of love. That's the whole sum total of being a Christian. Faith expressing itself in love. And this is why we must all be filled with more and more and more of God's love. His love allows us to know and do what is excellent. The love of God gives us perception and discernment to know what is excellent. Now I'm just going to say I'm using an excellent commentary by Gordon Fee, which I've had since I was in seminary, on Philippians. And he points out that in this prayer, and this, this is kind of hard, so please pay attention to me. Paul is modeling what pastors, leaders, parents, what all mature Christians need to be doing. Okay, When we know Christ's priorities, we must not um, let those who are under our care cease to strive to be more like Jesus Christ. So if we're mentoring anybody, if we're discipling anybody, we must continue to encourage them to grow in Christ's likeness, both in their character, who they are, in their deeds, what they do. And, and I love this, and again, if you got the outlines, take it home and think about it. But before this church planning apostle wrote to them in the next three and a half chapters what they were supposed to be doing, what they needed to grow in and to continue to grow in, what did he do first? He didn't go right to them and try to change them. He talked to God in prayer about what they need. I've heard reports. I've seen they need this. God, give it to them. And then he goes on in this brief prayer here to tell them what he prayed. So they need to have their love growing. They need to be more blameless. They need to be more righteous. All of these things. He prayed it and then he said, oh, by the way, I prayed this for you. So in essence, he's praying that they would continue to abound more and more in God's love. Because everything else you need, and that's in the rest of this letter, that's excellent, it will flow out of you as God's love increases in you. The most important thing is that we know God's love, that we experience God's love, that we grow in God's love. The love of God gives perception not only to know what is excellent to do, but also to do it. And that's the bottom line. That's where the rubber meets the road. So the church planning apostle prayed for the church in Philippi. First, that their love will abound more and more in correct knowledge and perception, resulting in them approving what's excellent, staying and growing in sincerity and blamelessness all the way to the day of Jesus Christ and having been filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ, they will do righteous deeds to the glory of God. 
The love of God gives perception to know what is excellent.